1951, there were these two Argentinian friends, uh, two guys, um, and they started travelling around South America. Um, they travelled on this uh, 500cc Northern motorcycle uh, and just uh, sort of explored the extents of uh, this continent. Um, they had this catalogue of fascinating adventures, met all sorts of interesting people, and uh, one of them kept a diary um, of uh, what was going on, and uh, uh, diary still available for uh, sort of for us to read today. And uh, there's stories of mechanical disasters inevitably if you bought a northern motorcycle. Um, there's meeting uh, revolutionaries and sort of guerrillas who are sort of looking to overthrow governments. There's stories of being stowaways on boats because they couldn't pay their way or, or they weren't legitimate travellers. Uh, there's this great story of one of them swimming the Amazon River, which is uh, no uh, feat uh, uh, to be um, taken under, done lightly. Um, and there's this great story of a uh, accordion player with only five fingers. Um, so it, quite a, 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 a a really compelling uh, account of these two uh, young lads' uh, adventures. Um, as well as being kind of young and curious, these guys were medical students. They were sort of going through uh, uh, this training, um, and the sickness and poverty and oppression that they encountered during that time changed their lives forever. What they saw in the lives of other people in South America change the course of their choices for the rest of their lives. Um, and I want you to listen to this passage uh, from uh, Che Guevara's uh, Motorcycle Guides um, and just listen to the experience and the heart and uh, uh, what they faced. It says this, away from scientific centres where we might be cut down to our size because they're early students. Our journey uh, becomes something of an event for the staff of the anti-leprosy hospitals and they treat us with respect worthy of two visiting researchers. I've got really keen on the lepology, uh, but I don't know how long for. The farewell which the patients in the Lima hospital gave us was enough to encourage us to carry on. They gave us a stove and collected money which in their economic circumstances was a fortune. And several of them said goodbye with tears in their eyes. Their appreciation stemmed from the fact that we didn't wear overalls or gloves. We shook hands with them as we would the next man. Seems a little bit more poignant in our times, doesn't it? With uh, all the uh, uh, gloves and masks and everything else. We sat with them, with these lepers, chatted about this and that, and played football with them. This may seem like pointless bravado, but the psychological benefit to these poor people, usually treated like animals, of being treated as normal human beings, was incalculable. And the risk, risk was incredibly remote. Ernesto Guevara's connection with the people of South America just grew and grew. And suddenly he wasn't just a, a, a man on his own, but he was part of a people of a continent. And he began to devote his life to the care of uh, these various nations that made up 
what he felt and saw as his people. And he looked to liberate them from exploitation, from all the different forces that seemed to demand everything of them but give nothing back. And uh, so he was involved in Guatemala, in Cuba and Bolivia in these attempts to free them from uh, oppression and ways that just constrain them in every sense. Nelson Mandela called Guevara's uh, efforts and everything, his legacy that he left behind. And they, Nelson Mandela said this of him, he's an inspiration for every human being who loves freedom. And it came from this journey, came from him living amongst all these different people oh, <coughs> in South America. And it came from his identity. He grew to assume a racial and cultural identity for uh, not just himself or his town or his country, but this entire continent of people who he saw himself in and saw them in himself. And it had all sorts of consequences for him, but it has similarly consequences for us all in how we understand ourselves, in who we think we are. Now last time we looked at Moses, we learned uh, uh, something new from De Stephen, the deacon, this guy who was the first martyr. He grow, gives this great sermon uh, about the narrative of the Old Testament and how it connects with Jesus and how Jesus is part of this story. And we learned from Stephen that Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household and he enjoyed the riches and benefits that that gave, that Egypt was at the uh, peak of its political, military and economic power and Moses was brought into that and uh, enjoyed the riches of it. But even though he enjoyed the riches of Egypt, Moses was no Egyptian. Let's read the first account of adult Moses. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 2. It says this. Not the most uh, auspicious start for uh, a hero uh, uh, from the Bible, but listen to this. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one that was in the wrong, why are you hitting your, young, your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. The central figure of the account in Exodus is Moses, and he has now grown up, and he is now a man. And he has all the independence and strength and insight that his maturity uh, implies. And he is enjoying 
the position of an Egyptian. He doesn't have to work in all the hard talk that his fellow Israelites do. Um, but despite not being treated as a Hebrew, he knows he's Hebrew. And he goes out and he witnesses the Egyptian beat uh, a Hebrew. And as he sees that, it's interesting who he identifies with. It would have been easy for him as a member of the Egyptian household, as a benefiter of all uh, the rights of Egypt, that uh, Egyptians were superior, that the uh, uh, class that he had been adopted into had a right to rule and reign and had a right to coerce other people to their will. And that these Hebrews, they were lesser, they were subject to the Egyptians. Perhaps he could even think in his mind that God had willed this state of affairs where Egyptians were in charge and the Hebrews were uh, supposed uh, to be under them. But as the Egyptian strikes a Hebrew, Moses' heart and allegiance becomes clear. Moses looks around. You know he knows that what he's going to do has consequences. And he looks around and he knows now that there are no witnesses. He looks around and makes sure that there is no one to dog him in. And then he makes his move. And it's easy to look at this and find Moses an evil murderer. He's taking another man's life deliberately and viciously. But the Hebrew text says something interesting. It uses the same word of violence of the Egyptian on the Hebrew as Moses on the Egyptian. The privileged Egyptian strikes the Hebrew and then the privileged Hebrew strikes the Egyptian. They are parallel moments of violence. There is an equality in what was done to both. Despite this, um, only Moses' leads to death. The Hebrew survives the Egyptians' violence, but the Egyptian does not survive Moses' violence. And now Moses has taken the law into his own hands and murdered one of the ruling classes. And perhaps he has that twin feeling in his chest of satisfaction that he has delivered his people. But a paranoia that comes from killing one of those in charge. He is kind of a guilt-ridden freedom fighter. And the next day he goes out amongst them again, these people that he sees as his own, that perhaps he wonders if they're going to be grateful that he has done something good for them. He is uh, going amongst them again, and he is detaching himself from his upbringing. He is forgetting all those years of study and tutelage and everything else. And he is remembering again, I am a Hebrew. My mum and dad were Hebrew. My legacy uh, 
and my forefathers are Israelite. And then he back encounters violence again. He has freed them from a moment from the oppression of this Egyptian. But what are these Hebrews up to? Do they enjoy the peace that he is momentarily won? No, they are fighting again. They are scrapping and attacking one another. And it is so true that even if we are freed from uh, uh, slavery, we have this inclination to make trouble for ourselves. Uh, we learned uh, last time that, you know, if Jesus delivers us for something and we don't follow him, like sevenfold trouble will come. And this is kind of what happens here. Uh, uh, Moses kills an Egyptian to save his people and so they get on with fighting over each other. And it's a universal truth, I think, that even if we are not being stomped on from above, our hearts are troublesome. They are perpetually grasping. And true peace isn't present. Just the absence of oppression doesn't lead to liberty. Um, let me read um, this uh, moment of confession from Augustine says this. Just listen to this internal battle that Augustine describes. I was fixing my attention on things contained in space, the material world. And there I found no rest, no place to rest in, nor did those external things receive me so that I could say, it is enough and it is a well. When if you've ever chased after something and then after you've got it, you haven't found any other peace and so chased after something new. Nor did they allow me to return where it was enough and well for me. I was superior to these external objects, but inferior to you, and you are my true joy. If I had submit to you and you have made me subject and you have made subject to me what you created then that is lower than me. And he's saying, in the created order, God is above. He created man. And then we have things. And we should treat them as things. And nothing more. They are not the answers to the desires of our heart, no matter what the advertisements tell us. I was superior to these external objects, but inferior to you. You are my true joy. This was the correct middle ground in which I would find health, that I should remain in your image and in serving you be master of my body. But when in my arrogance I rose against you and ran up against the Lord, even those inferior things came on top of me and pressed me down, and there was never any relaxation or breathing space. And and Augustine describes as this battle of not being in harmony with God, of looking around with greed and avarice, with that desire to accumulate, that desire uh, uh, to have a standing in this world. And he's saying, this is what I wanted, but it brought me no peace. It brought me no rest. I became even more uh, um, tumultuous. And he goes on. 
as I gazed at them, they attacked me on all sides in massive heaps. And as I thought about them, the very images of physical objects formed an obstacle to my return, as if saying, where are you going, unworthy sword man? This grew out of my wound, for you have humbled the proud like a wounded man. My, and I really like this, my swelling conceit separated me from you, and the gross swelling of my face closed my eyes. There's this wonderful picture of Augustine's materialism and his, his, his hunger for material life and his desire to find a place in it, it being uh, like a wound, and it causes his face to swell so much that he cannot see the Lord. And we find this blindness that comes from being devoted to things lesser than himself rather than greater. Augustine knew that he needed someone to deliver him. And not just to deliver him from stuff, but into something too. To lead us out of slavery into freedom. Out of slavery to things, out of slavery to other people, out of slavery to ourselves, into something glorious. And something that we could not imagine. It's really hard at this moment not to start going on about how Jesus is the one, but we need to move on with the story. So Moses comes again amongst his people. He has killed an Egyptian, he has freed them from a moment of beating, and sure enough they are hitting each other. And Moses sees this conflict and he knows which one is guilty. And he asserts himself. Perhaps with a little of the Egyptian training that he's received, he comes in with articulate speech, comes in with a sense of poise, comes in with a sense of his own worth. Listen to me, Hebrews, let me tell you the truth. But this young upstart is not welcomed by his uh, fellow men. The person that is in the wrong now turns his uh, ire to Moses. And he says, who appointed you? Who put you in charge? And he goes, you think you're better than us, but you've already killed someone yesterday. You thought it was done in secret, but everyone knows about it. And he challenges Moses' authority right at the beginning of Moses' adult life. And this moment is repeated throughout Moses' life. Moses comes in to try and help. And the people he helps go, who are you? What are you to come in and interrupt my life? Who are you to dispel the equilibrium? Who are you to say that we need to go somewhere else? This very same accusation of who are you? Who appointed you? Who put you here? Is levelled at him again and again and again. Throughout Moses' life, into old age, people say, Who are you, Moses? What makes you think you are better than me? What makes you think that you should be in charge? And we find it from the doubting Jew. 
both here and as he leads his people and in the wilderness. They say, who are you? And you know what? Just as the Hebrews scoff at Moses, the Egyptians do too. When he comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, they say, who are you, Moses? appointed you, leader of the people? Who appointed you uh, uh, the father of Israel's destiny? Who appointed you the interrupter of uh, Egypt's uh, uh, badly paid workforce? Moses is struggling. He's neither Hebrew nor Egyptian. Both tribes doubt his worth and importance. As our hero will later stand before the burning bush. It is no wonder at all when God says, I'm sending you. Moses says, who are you to send me? What is my authority? I have been questioned already and I know it's going to be my future too. Who is it that sends me? In our 21st century Western culture, each of us can feel a degree of rootlessness. Old ties and links and identities are eroded by time and space and technology. All the different links that used to make the community are severed as we move forward. It is no surprise that study after study mentions loneliness, especially in this time of pandemic. We ask ourselves, who are we? Do I have any worth? What is my tribe? Who can I look to to look after me? Who do I look to to help me? Who do I look to to be part of and contribute to? And wonderfully, not only uh, can we find understanding in Moses' story, but we can find answers in the new Moses, which is Jesus. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9. A great moment uh, exploring identity. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have a place to call home. Birds have a place to call home. But Jesus says, I've no home here. I've no rest. I've no community. He said to another man, follow me. But this other man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Let me first remember my family, my tribe. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And we see, well, it's a bit harsh, letting a rotting corpse on the side of the road. You know, perhaps Jesus should have a sense of uh, uh, community hygiene. But Jesus is saying your identity first should be me and my kingdom. 
And then verse 61, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service, for service in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, when I call you, I call you out of your tribe, out of your community, out of your old identities, into something new. And you don't get to look back. There are lots of different competing ways that we understand ourselves. I wonder how you think of yourself. We can define ourselves by our geography and location and where we live. We can describe ourselves by our family, those around us, those that we are tied to by blood. We can define ourselves by our ethnicity. But Jesus says, you need to leave those behind. You need to think of yourself in a new identity. You are one of mine. So, whether you think of yourself as English or British or European or African or Asian or white, black, educated, male, female, married, single, gay, straight, whether you think of yourself in all these different classifications, Jesus says, yeah, you need to leave those behind. These are temporary labels. They have no endurance. They only last a little while while you're on this fallen earth. It's the identity of Jesus that we need to embrace and call our own. His name should be on our lips and in our hearts. When someone asks who we are, our first response should be, we are Jesus's. We are children of God. Now the Hebrews knew about Moses' killing and then the Egyptians learn too, Moses has got nowhere to hide. He can't go back uh, to Pharaoh's household because he's a wanted murderer. And he can't go to the Hebrews because they don't want him either, that he will only bring them trouble. And now Moses has nowhere to go. He is a fox without a den, a bird without a nest. He is uh, the son of man without somewhere to lay his head. Both the Jews and the Egyptians, these former identities are had, are his enemies. He has an ache in his heart for his own people, but they don't recognise him. He would face up to the Egyptians. Perhaps he would kill each one individually to save his people, but he knows he is small and powerless and can do nothing. So this man, this killer of men, this man that was saved as a baby, this man that was brought up in the household of Pharaoh, this man that wanted to be the champion of the oppressed, this man that wanted to be the opposer of the proud, what does he do? He goes on the run. He goes into hiding. Now your text and mine says he goes to Midian. But the trick is, Midian doesn't exist. The Midianites were nomads. They didn't rest their head in the same place two nights in a row. They travelled around and we suddenly have this very rich picture of Moses going from somewhere that he thought was his home to a place of restlessness, a place of travel, a place of constant moving wilderness. 
It is there in the nowhere land. Moses finds who he is. He wanted to find who he was with his people, but there was no room for him there. It is in the nomadic life of the Midianites that Moses finds his calling. He finds his destiny. He finds his identity. He finds his purpose. It is in the wilderness that he gets his community. So often we have ideas and dreams of what our lives would look like, of what our home will be, of how our, where a sense of worth will come from. But so often we don't end up in the place we want to be. We feel ever that we don't fit and we feel that sense of restlessness. Well, the story of Moses should give us hope this morning. Because when we have nowhere to lay our head, when we feel a lack of a nest or a den, it is God that steps in and says, your circumstance, your community might not be what you want, but I can be your rest. I can be your peace. I want to be your identity. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we just really appreciate the richness of this story of Moses. Lord God, we find in him someone struggling to find who he is and what his purpose is and feels this sense of calling to help his people but is unable to do it well. And Lord God, as he's driven out into the wilderness, as he's driven out to be homeless and nomadic, we find it is there that he meets you. It is there that you satisfy his soul. Lord God, I pray for us this morning. Lord God, if we are feeling restless, if we are feeling that there is nowhere that we can call home, that we are perpetually in the state of uncertainty, that we are forever in a wilderness, Lord God, I thank you that these are moments when especially you draw near, that we can throw out old ways of thinking about ourselves and we can embrace the God who would write his name on our foreheads and on our hands that would call us his own. Heavenly Father, I thank you that the best and most everlasting identity we have is children of God, followers of Jesus. God, I thank you for this. In Jesus' name.